Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Jessica here. I'd like to welcome you to Paralympics Week on Burn It All Down. The Paralympics start tomorrow, Tuesday, August 24th, and continue through September 5th. Today, we have my interviews from last year with para-athletes Kristen Duquette and Lacey Henderson. Stick around to the end for updates from both of them. Tomorrow, on our regular weekly episode, Amira, Brenda, Lindsay, and I have a discussion about the Paralympics that includes a cameo from Brenda's sister, and we preview sports and athletes from the Paralympics that you will want to watch. Wednesday, we're re-upping Amira's interview from 2018 with Dr. Jana Belanger about disability awareness in sport and how athletes with varying disabilities are grouped for Paralympic competition. On Thursday, Amira talks to Matoko Rich, the New York Times Tokyo Bureau Chief, about what is happening on the ground there and we'll have additional coverage in the coming days. As always, burn on, not out. Okay, first, uh, tell me who you are and what you do. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm Kristen Duquette. I don't know where to begin because I feel like I have lived about five different lives at this point. Kristen Duquette is a former Team USA swimmer for the Paralympic League, She's a former Obama appointee who now works in the federal government. She's also a student at the Naval Postgraduate School for Homeland Defense and Security. And definitely a disability rights advocate uh, nationwide and internationally also. Well, that does sound like five lifetimes worth of things. (laughs) It's very impressive. Can we start by talking, if you feel comfortable with this, can you tell us a little bit about your disability and what it means to have a progressive disability and the impact of that on your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up non-disabled, meaning I I didn't show any symptoms of any kind of disability at all. And at the time when I was a kid, I was doing about six different sports. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer. I wanted to be Natalie Coughlin. Coughlin's got the lead, but they're Maderos and Bootsma chasing, and it's going to be Natalie Coughlin. And I love backstroke. What started to happen was I couldn't keep up with my friends. I remember at a swim meet doing a flip turn at the wall. And when I flipped, I looked on either side in the middle of the flip turn and I, I couldn't see anyone around me. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm totally killing it here. And I think I was, what, like seven or eight. I'm a very competitive person that hasn't changed, but... I touched the wall and I see no one else is in the pool because I was that slow and everyone was clapping and um, my shoulder blades are starting to stick out. Uh, it's called scapular winging and I was starting to trip over my feet and I remember when I was about seven, eight, nine, just being like, Kristen, why can't you do this? Like just run a little faster or just like kick a little harder. What is going on? I got a genetic test and a bunch of tests when I was eight. And on the week of my ninth birthday, I was diagnosed with fasciocapular humeral dystrophy, which is a specific kind of muscular dystrophy. It's genetic. It's non-life-threatening for the majority of people. Growing up was not fun. They definitely went through my phases of depression and struggling of trying to fit in, uh, just like all kids growing up. But the more I was growing up, also different aspects of my body were just degrading at the same time. So while I was maturing intellectually and socially, physical parts of my body were going in the opposite direction. What did this mean for your sports career? I wasn't aware of disabled sports. I wasn't aware of Paralympics or anything like that. I just quit all sports and I took up music. I just threw myself into academics. I used to be a manager of different sports teams and I despised it. I just, I wanted to also be out on the field. It was only when I was in high school was I I retaught myself how to swim. I wanted to do something on my own body's merit, and I wanted to be with my friends. Can you tell me what it, what do you mean when you say you taught, retaught yourself how to swim? Like, what did that look like? How do you explain That's that to someone question. who is able-bodied and how yeah. they had to relearn a skill like that? Yeah, I mean, I essentially, I took six years off, and 
I remember sitting down and being like, okay, I mentally remember how to do it. Regardless, if you are in a different phase of a body, you mentally still remember how to do it. Like, I still remember how to run, even though my legs could not do that. But um, mm. you can imagine that, right? So it's a lot of different visualization with memory. And I was just like, all right, let's just see what we can do. And I remember looking up different YouTube videos of technique of like Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Aaron Pearsall, just like very high stake races that I would actually take to the pole and pretend it was like the final countdown, but it was really with like a senior citizen swimming next to me and they didn't know that it was the final countdown. But so I used like a lot of imagination, but just getting back into the water was so beautiful in the sense that I had no one around. I just fell in love with something all over again that gave me so much freedom and joy in a world that I really didn't feel like I belonged in a lot of senses. And also I was getting that endorphin high and the chemical releases that I hadn't had in years. But the end goal was to be on my high school swim team and I knew that no one else was disabled at all. So I said to myself, and I don't know where this came from, uh, but I said, if I could swim 600 laps and the pole was maybe like 10, 11 yards, it wasn't a 25 meter or anything like that. I said, if I could swim 600 laps in that pole in one day, I can at least show this high school coach that I love the water. I'm not going to be making points, but hopefully I can add something to the team. And so I made a journal. I like did a bunch of workouts and I, I logged it all. And I eventually did that goal a year later. And I emailed her and, and she was like, I have no clue who you are. I can't, I can't imagine now. Like I was 15, I think. Yeah, I was 15 of like getting an email from a 15 year old of like, look, I did this. And then I, I like swam this, but I can't make points to your team. Like, can I be on your team? And she said, I don't know who you are, but you definitely show determination and a passion for this. I would love if you were on our team that you also trained for the Paralympics. And so that's how I actually learned about the Paralympics and started. Oh, that's so interesting. And so you hadn't seen, growing up, you hadn't seen disabled athletes. No. So actually, a, a funny story that I like to say is, when I, I wasn't competing and I wasn't swimming. So I think I was about 13 at the time. I remember watching the 2004 Olympic Games and just like watching all the races that were happening in Greece. And I remember thinking like, my God, if I had another shot of swimming and racing, I would just like, God, I would give it my all. And six years later in 2010, I competed at that same venue as the captain of Team USA. You have set, this is, am I correct on this? You have set American Paralympic records? American records, yes. Yeah, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to set a record like that? It's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and so in the middle of all of this, you go to college because we're talking about your college years. Yeah. You go to Wheaton. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the story of trying to swim while you're at Wheaton? Yeah. I went up with a swim coach beforehand. You know, I was 18, 17, 18. He was like, I've trained with other Paralympic swimmers back in my career. Like, yeah, this is awesome. And so I went there. And just being a disabled person in general, you have to be your advocate at all times. And I was growing into speaking up for myself in those ways because growing up, I felt so much shame for looking and operating so differently than everyone else around me. And I had a comment one time from the coach of like, oh, you said you need help doing XYZ. Like, does your mom help you put your competition suit on too? Things like that. And I, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't even understand the context. And I really didn't feel included at all. Uh, some of the swimmers were nice but I definitely was not included. And I, I was told multiple times 
that I was too intense on a dream and something that I really wanted. What eventually happened was I was actually at a training in San Diego, California with one of the Team USA coaches. And I got an email in August from the coach of all the reasons why I should no longer be on the swim team. And they were going to have tryouts this year. And I could try out, but it was very likely I wouldn't make it. And I could still swim at the pool if I wanted to. But the chances of me being actually on the swim team now were not going to happen. And it was a eight bullet points. And some of them were, will you take away from your teammates' concentration before their events because you ask for help to get out of the pool? Obviously, because these pools don't have ADA compliance of lifts. So I do have to get pulled out and I physically can't pull myself out of a pool. It related a lot to asking for help in a lot of things that I legitimately needed help with. And again, I felt a ton of shame. I felt like I was a burden and I hated it and I didn't know where else to go. And I I transferred to Trinity because it was close to home. And I did that within two weeks of the semester of my sophomore year. And I filed a complaint with the Department of Education of that instance at Wheaton College with the swim coach. That was with the Office of Civil Rights? Yes. What happened with it? You know, I think maybe about a year or two later, I got a notice, uh, like a letter. But I don't think anything really came of it. I know Hmm. a lot of people said, you know, Kristen, you should sue the school. I, quite frankly, just didn't have it in me. I just felt so much shame. I didn't want to rehash so much of that. And so you had the goal of going to the 2012 Paralympics in London. When did you find out that that was not going to happen? The 2012 uh, U.S. Paralympic trials were in North Dakota, I remember, so I'm a backstroker, and I remember since I was in a lower class, less events were going to be available in the London Games. So it it was for an event that was not my event. And I, I did the 50 free. I saw my times. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I, I knew that, but what they did is after the swim meet, they ask you to go into a room and they announce the team. And I knew I didn't make it, but I still went because a lot of my friends I knew were going to make it. And I will never forget such a conflicting moment of feeling like my heart was like swept on the floor and stomped on at the same time of feeling really happy uh, for my friends that are crying because they made a dream that they wanted while my dream was just crushed. It did take a while to not feel depressed and to know that there is so much else to do outside of competing and swimming. And after London 2012, I remember talking with my college advisor on what my thesis would be. And we wanted to tie in so much of my personal experience. And I thought about and eventually wrote whether disability rights are viewed as human rights in a UN context of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, specifically Article 30.5, which is the right to sport. Yeah. And you went to the UN, correct? In 2016 to talk about this. Can you give us what is like your elevator pitch for your arguments? Like what were you arguing in your thesis? Wow, I really put on the spot. Um, uh, That's fine. We could like... No, I'll I'll try. I mean, I put enough work into it and it was a very expensive education. So I might as well put something (laughs) off of it. Um, Essentially, the argument is that it's valid and it needs to happen, but the disability community on an international level 
It's the biggest minority population in the world. It's drastically underrepresented. And the majority of a lot of governments are still very much focusing on basic human rights for people that are disabled because it's needed. But at the same time, I want to push it as my coaches in the past have said I am a pit bull. I want to push it to all the other levels of uh, recreation, of sport, of media, of sexual reproductive rights, of politics. And it's going to take all of us. It's not those that are just disabled to do that. A good friend of mine is an organizer, and she always says that hope is a discipline. Oh, you got to... You got to work at that, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's not just something you can hold all the time. Um, is access to sport a human right? I would categorize sport as culture and access to culture is a human right. I would constitute that obviously as a secondary human right compared to food, water, shelter. And I would 100% see it more as also an access because non-disabled people have access to that. And so we need equal access. So the pandemic has been affecting all kinds of athletes, right, from amateur to professional, and we've seen that. But in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected? Yeah, the one thing that we we do have going for ourselves is the ability to adapt. We're always adapting to different situations. We're always adapting to getting more injuries or more susceptible to physical things that come in our way. Um, and obviously systems too. So I think the biggest thing is we're already creative. We have a leg up in that sense. I also think at the same time, depending on the disability itself, there's only kind of a window for a lot of disabilities that you really peak. And a lot of that is contingent on time and where you are in your body to like max it out. But also, you know, on top of that, a lot of disabled athletes are also immunocompromised. If I was immunocompromised and also a Paralympic uh, swimmer still training, would I run the risk of using the pole I would always use? There's a lot of elements that aren't working in your favor when you're already physically compromised in some way. I have a couple more questions. Is Go for it. Okay? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm in quarantine. Um, so- I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> um, so I know that disabled athletes and access to sport, this is a huge topic, but... Are there two or three maybe basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Or I guess like if you were in charge of the world, Kristen, like what would be the first thing that that you would change around disabled sports? Oh, gosh, I would. uh, Do people want (laughs) me to have that power? Um, I would increase the ability for disabled athletes to have collegiate scholarships And I, quite frankly, I would rework the NCAA system to also include disabled athletes because that opens... I actually never thought about the fact that it doesn't. It doesn't unless you have a particular type of disability that you are still able to contribute within the NCAA point system. So I would love if it was integrated. That can be a bit controversial of able-bodied and disabled athletes uh, competing on the same teams. There's a lot of discussion on that, or would you just have disabled teams compete against each other? But we need to integrate that. We also need to have the same amount of coverage for the Paralympics as the Olympics. They need more scholarships. They need more sponsorships. Disabled athletes also need the same amount of care and attention when it comes to mental health too. So here's my fun COVID question. What are you doing to pass the time these days? Like, have you picked up a hobby? Are you binge watching anything? Oh gosh. Um, I've really gotten into painting my nails because uh, I would usually hmm. never do that because okay. I wouldn't have the time. Definitely. Uh, oh, this is what I've been doing. I 
have gone down rabbit holes on TikTok of skincare and free Britney movement. And I am definitely pro Britney movement. That's great. That's great. I love her. Her Instagram is a thing of beauty. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, Kristen. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. You can follow Kristen on Instagram at Kristen two underscores Duquette, D-U-Q-U-E-T-T-E, and on Twitter at Kristen Duquette, all one word. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now let's turn to our second guest. My name is Lacey Henderson. I am a Paralympian. I do long jump professionally for U.S. Paralympics. Um, I I dabble in the 100 meters as well. And I lost my leg above the knee to childhood cancer. I had a cancer called synovial sarcoma and then kind of was an athlete with a prosthetic leg growing up. I cheered competitively in high school and then I cheered in college And I kind of like in a weird roundabout way found track and field um, as I was finishing my undergrad. So it's been a great way to kind of use your disability to get a job and pay the bills. (laughs) Well, you take me, I'd like to talk about your first race. Could you tell me about that? Um, (laughs) I'll tell the embarrassing, like when I'm, when I have time, I tell like the glory story, but this, it was not. It was the opposite of that, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so tell me the non-glory story. I had basically started pole vaulting. My dad went to Olympic trials for pole vault. He and I, like, are overly competitive, and we'll just talk trash. Like, that's my actual true talent is trash talking. And so one day we were just, like, talking about who was a better athlete, and somehow he was like, Lacey, you couldn't pole vault two feet. He's like, you're not fast enough, you're not strong enough, you just wouldn't be able to do it. At 21, like, you can't tell me nothing, okay? I know it all. And um, only my, like, family that comes from a pole vault background would be able to have a pole vault pit and poles just, like, ready, like, just, like, (laughs) on demand. So the next day I jumped, I jumped six feet. But, like, basically, I really got into the feeling. Like, I knew that my cheer career was going to end, and I just wanted to still feel like I could do flips and, like, fly. And so I got a running leg. I started competing just like an indoor kind of all comer track meets and I got asked to do my first hundred meter race and um, so I'm from Denver and my dad is like a like a well-known track name for at least a while probably not now yeah the time keeps going but uh we're lined up at the line and I know the announcers from cheerleading I used to judge cheer competitions as well and so they were just like trolling the hell out of me and they were like Lacey Henderson like daughter of legend TJ Henderson, like all-star cheerleader, blah, blah. And of course, like, again, me 21, I'm like, yes, like that's me. Like I'm the best. (laughs) So we line up, it's a unified race. So they have like all ages, um, different levels of disability. And the person I'm lined up to is this like younger boy. And he, I'm a right leg amputee. He's a left leg amputee. We get set, the gun goes off and our prosthetic our blades clip each other and so I like I go down immediately to the ground and I just remember like laying face planted on the track for a second I was like man they really had to do that whole introduction and I hear like one of the coaches who's who's coincidentally I'm a congenital amputee I just hear him be like Lacey get up get up Lacey get up you have to finish get up so I get up I finish the race but they actually let me come back 
the following day and um, I'm able to race again and then I qualify for London. So the second part of the story is usually what I tell people when I want to be impressive, but that's, <laughs> that's actually what happened. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, so you have been to the Paralympics. You went to Rio in mm-hmm. 2016. You competed in the 100 meter dash and then the long jump where you placed eighth, which is... Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so tell me when you started thinking about the 2020 Tokyo Games. Um, well, first of all, that was very nice of you to say I finished eighth, which is fantastic. So it was, it's so funny. It is fantastic. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I made finals, which is crazy because like, I think like when you get to a certain level and just athletes in general, you're always so hard on yourself. You're like, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. But it is, it's true. I made finals. <laughs> like it was not the best meet of my life, but I didn't make finals. People did not make finals. I have to remind myself. Thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder. You're so, welcome. um, I, I, so I wasn't satisfied clearly with my Rio performance and I was like, all right, we'll get them next time. So that was pretty much like a plan of the seed. I knew I was scratching the surface of like, of my skill set. And so I was like, all right, if we do another four years, like it's going to be popping off. Okay. So then when did it start to enter your mind that they may postpone the 2020 games? I think like maybe January, February, my mom started being like, oh, this COVID's really bad. And I still was traveling for work. I was still traveling for training. And um, I was living in Austin. I moved to Denver because I was having issues with facilities. In Denver, I have a little bit better resources. We were going to finish the year with the home team and um, maybe finish the career in Denver where it all started. It was going to be very like a beautiful metaphor. And I start going to my tracks and they're locked up, but not like normal one padlock, like triple padlocked up. And, um, you know, you're like, well, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to, to be able to find a sandpit if I can't get to a track. But I was used to just like getting kicked out of facility, like for being a track athlete at the professional level, honestly, we get no love except for Olympic years. And even then they're like, get off the track. You're not supposed to be because hmm. you're like of, using is it like because you're using high school and college facilities yeah so it, like in, why like if you're an alumni of your school it's usually a lot easier but I went uh, uh. like conveniently I went to a school where they don't have a track team okay but I, like and I have facility like I have access to facilities here so probably like late February there starts being a little bit more like inconsistencies with tracks being available and then I would say like mid-March it starts like dawning on you that you're like there is no way that they can do this there's no way they can do this and USA if I may be frank I like okay let me just preface this by preface this by saying I have been lucky enough to be an athlete for my adult life so I don't really know like a lot about business I don't know a lot about budgets but with that being said USA was definitely like on team make this happen so um we had a couple of calls from with USOPC for a few kind of like emergency type situations because there was athletes on these calls that like like swimmers and water polo athletes were like oh I'm going into the ocean to try to train or like oh I'm going into lakes to try to train because I can't get to the pool and like I have international competitors and I have like really strong competitors from Italy and Spain and they were locked in their houses and it just seemed I remember at one point I said on a call I was like this seems like the opposite of integrity and the idea of sports is so beautiful and wonderful and harmonic, but the business side of sport is like, oh, we spent a lot of money on this, so we need to find, do everything we can to make this work. So a lot of people were like kind of freaking out. Track meets for us were just like dropping left and right, and you have to qualify in order to go to trials, and then trials, you have to qualify for the team for Tokyo. Everything was postponed for a while, postponed, postponed, and then when Tokyo got postponed, it was like, all right, we're going to just redo this year next year. Can you tell me what that's like? I, I'm an anxious person. Maybe this is too basic a question, but like, how did you manage that? Like, how did you feel? Um, first of all, let me say I have a fantastic sports psychologist. He was good. I was texting him a lot <laughs> before that, good. and we had a couple of FaceTime calls. And honestly, when they announced it officially, I felt relief. It was becoming too, so stressful to just like try to fight to find a track that's open, try to fight to find gyms that were open, which they were all closed. It was like, this is real. They finally made the decision and, you know, you can regroup and kind of reprogram for the upcoming year. So you felt relief. I'm wondering if there was anything you did that you normally wouldn't have done because you were training. Like, did you go like eat a bunch of ice cream or? Um, I like wine. 
I'll say that. <laughs> I'm the gal that likes a nice glass of wine. Not really. I mean, I didn't like, you know, you see jokes about like people like, you know, day drinking at 11 a.m., which I do think is funny. But like, I still yeah. I still tried to maintain some type of routine. Like that was one thing that I've learned a long time ago with track is that having something that resembles a routine kind of helps your brain, like not just feel like it's in complete desperation, which like some days it worked and some days it didn't. And that's okay. I kind of like, I tried to do things that I didn't, that I don't normally do. So like I was doing like little video yoga classes and like trying to run distance around the blocks of my neighborhood. And like, I'm not cut out for that. I learned pretty quickly, but the yoga videos were were pretty fun. Like I just really tried to like kind of do things that were relaxing and not track specific. So what does training look like for you right now then? Is it running around your neighborhood? How are you getting ready? So the plan is basically now is I was doing some light training, still on the track. I'm, I'm really maximizing my equipment, which needed, God, it needed help. So my prosthetic is like nice now. Like I did not have it set up. So it's getting real nice for 2020, which is great. Um, Can you tell me what that means to maximize your prosthetic? So, yeah. So Paris, so funny. Um, there's like rules and regulations. I get asked this a lot. There's rules and regulations mostly for the bilateral amputees. But for the unilateral amputees, like you'll start seeing like trends basically of the alignment on a lot of the prosthetics. So like a lot of the time the foot looks really far behind. So your weight line from like your hip down to your toe is almost like at a triple extension angle. Like basically when Mm -hmm. your foot is hitting the ground, like you're almost like a terminal stance type phase. So it was really just like getting the alignment down. Um, I was on like running blades that were way too stiff. So I wasn't getting good compression last year. We actually had issues with shipping because most of my feet come from Austria. Um, so I had some old ones that were just way too stiff. So thank goodness my prosthetist, that's the term for that clinical profession. But my prosthetist is very smart. He's really good at physics. So we just shaved off the sides and we were able to get the compression that we needed for now. We've, we've definitely learned to be resourceful in an unprecedented time. But uh, we'll start preseason training, which is like heavy volume stuff in October and, and go through. Before we talk like big picture stuff around disabled athletes, I wanted to ask, did the postponement affect any other parts of your life? Like I'm, I assume you had post Paralympic plans. Yeah, have, for sure. Have any of those <laughs> been put on hold or what are you doing about that part of your life? It's been on hold and it's changed, which I think is a good thing. Um, I had a lot of speaking events lined up this year. So like also my bank mm-hmm. account was like, sure. Yep. Yeah. A little bit more frowny faces, but you know, like I'll do a Zoom, whatever. (laughs) But I mean, my plan was retiring after Tokyo. Mm. And I was ready to like kind of pick up stuff for my own podcast and kind of pick up stuff like for my career outside of sport. And um, actually, I was really just burning out like 2018, 2019. I was training by myself. I was having all these leg problems. And I was just like, I just just need to get through to Tokyo, just need to get through to Tokyo. And like, that's like not a great motivator, but I guess it was good enough at the time. And this year, like being able to take the time to like, to see like, do I like track? Like, yes, I do like track. Oh, like here are all the things that my leg needed that I kept putting off, putting off. And now we're fixing them. And I feel like I'm like, maybe I could go to 2024. Like, I think that's just been kind of a really weird, but good reset. USOPC offers, um, schooling you can do online school so I'm getting my master's degree right now which is kind of cool and it's in what MBA awesome it was wow. cool it was, it was available it was cool I didn't really think about it but you know I panicked I was like what am I gonna do with all my time and then it just turned out like I was just not organizing my time very well and um but a lot of that was just like constant I think exhaustion fighting your prosthetic and so I don't know if I'm still competitive and I can, I'm still able to make teams and it still is fun and like serving me, then, you know, why not? Okay. So not retiring. No, no, not, Interesting. not okay. this time, not this go okay. around. <laughs> all right. So obviously the pandemic is affecting athletes of all stripes at this point, but in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected by the pandemic? Like what kind of conversations with other disabled athletes, like what have those conversations been like? What are you hearing from your friends that are Paralympians? Okay. Um, sorry. I just like heard a lawnmower go off and I'm like, I don't think you can hear it. Okay. That's a, my husband just mowed the lawn and I was like, you better finish at 1 p.m. I was on a, so. yeah, I was on a call yesterday and I was like, I swear to God, <laughs> my neighbor you. was trolling me. I'm like, come on. Okay. <laughs> you hear me on here. So at first I think I was like, 
disabled athletes. Like we are adaptable. We are the masters at adapting. And uh, I mean, I think, wow, that's true. There's also so many risks that I feel like is going to be interesting on how it's covered and taken care of. My personal belief is that like, you know, a world post COVID is going to still be very much affected by it. So having 10,000 athletes in one dining hall at one time is going to be creative to say the least, regardless of ability or not. And for me, I'm lucky enough that I'm an ambulatory athlete where I just kind of like, all I need is a leg, you know, that's it. And um, for athletes, I think a lot about like the seated athletes, like a, a lot of like higher spine injury athletes, like the bocce athletes, any type of quad athlete that's going to need assistance transferring from their chair to their throwing chair, like it's going to be interesting and it will definitely be more heavily affected than the non-disabled athletes for sure, which isn't to say that non-disabled athletes, I think that there's like this mindset where people think that the disabled athletes have like, we run more risks, which I guess we do, but there's plenty of non-disabled athletes with extenuating circumstances that could be affected by COVID. Just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that you have like a steel immune system. There's also like the fact that for track and field, at least in the US, a lot of our officials are just like the exact age demographic of the people most affected by this. So hopefully, and I have full faith that there is people much smarter than me <laughs> making plans for those circumstances because everybody has a right to play. And, you know, these different categories of athletes should still be able to do their sport. And I know that they're still training. Hopefully the powers that be have plans put in place for that. One thing I've been thinking about COVID is we're hearing a lot about, obviously a lot of people have died, um, but a lot of people have gotten it, gotten better but had disability on the other side of it. Yeah. These long haulers, like we're going to have a significant number of new disabled people specifically from this pandemic that we're living through right now. And I'm wondering what your message would be to those people that want to be athletic and how should people within sports be preparing for this? That's a great question, actually. Um, I would say, first of all, I guess to everybody, you learn quickly that no one disability is created equal. And um, I think we're learning now with COVID is that like no one person responds to a disease or a treatment equally as somebody else. And the cool thing about sports is that there are people, especially now with the Paralympic movement growing, there are people put in place that are equipped to present sport to you and make it accessible to you, no matter what your circumstances, your physical circumstance. I should be honest, because let me tell you, being disabled is one of the most expensive things I've done. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, I didn't sign up for it, but it just, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So without the risk of getting too political, hopefully after this too, we find way better ways to serve the disabled community because even before COVID, we were the largest minority in the world. And um, it's just going to keep growing for people recovering from COVID that are going to acquire like prolonged or permanent issues. Um, you just learn to make your disability a part of your routine. And I think like the biggest misconception is that people with disabilities wake up like super duper inspired and jazz to just like take on the world and just prove everybody wrong. And you're like, nah, man, I'm just trying to go to the grocery store today. <laughs> like, you know, like the yeah. disabled were just like you, but the biggest thing, I guess, for disability, especially in the U.S., is you have to learn to advocate for yourself because no one else is doing it right now. Hmm. So I know that disabled athletes access to sport. That's a huge topic. But are there two or three basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Like if Lacey was in charge of the world and you got to change two or three things that would suddenly make sport more accessible for disabled yeah. athletes, like what would that be for you? Honestly, I would do a lot more cohesive and unified sports. I was lucky enough to train in Phoenix with alongside Olympians. And it was like a utopia type experience for training. Like we had able-bodied, we had disabled athletes, we had everybody. And um, that proved to me that everybody can grow and everybody can get better regardless of the people you surround yourself with. And I think right now, like the U.S., we have gotten very comfortable with the NCAA system providing sport development for athletes becoming adults, which is great, um, but not great for everybody because not everybody can be an NCAA athlete and, you know, score points for that team in like 
I think like our country could do a lot better job of just better sport development programs. We can do like more local sport development programs and make them unified, make them for everybody. Because like the crazy thing about disabled sport and non-disabled sport is that it's the same sport, like in track and field, like it's the (laughs) same event. It's the same distance. There's really the equipment may look different, but at the end of the day, it is the same event. Badminton's the same way. I learned that last year. Don't know a lot about badminton, but like, holy smokes. What an incredible sport, but they train with their able-bodied counterparts because it's the same sport. Mm -hmm. And I think people in the disability community, sometimes like we get wrapped up in it too, where things need to be separated or made specific for you, made specific for your disability, made specific for people with different disabilities. And sometimes you just need to jump in and play. And that was, I think, the biggest thing that I learned growing up even though I call it like I was in disability denial. Like I just was like, I'm not disabled. Just I just have one leg. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, but that was the best thing that served me was that you are just able to make, you just, you have that camaraderie. You're able to make friends in the same sport you do. And I think that's important because in our communities in our like closest communities, typically if you are a person with a disability, you're the only person in your community with a disability. So to try to do a sport consistently, you need to have groups that are going to help you achieve your sport regardless of who else participates in it. So can you tell us a little bit about, obviously what's next for you as training for Tokyo next year, but what else are you doing? Yeah, so right now I'm finishing my MBA. I just bought a house, which is exciting. We have a house. Whoa. So like I'm doing a lot of raking and like, you know, like trying yeah, to... there's always something with a the house. There's always something to do. It's actually yeah, yeah. a little overwhelming. But other than that, I mean, yeah, Tokyo is the plan. We'd like to travel. My boyfriend's grandma lives in Italy, so we and my family in Italy, so we always like to go back and at least hang out, kind of feel like, you know, you can get away for a second. But that's where I want to go when this is over. I'm learning Italian. Right nice. <laughs> well, well, like it's real loose. It's like once a week. For hey, but you know, just the effort. They they appreciate the effort regardless. I just yeah. I speak Spanish, but I'll do it with like an Italian accent, and you know, it's amazing how far you can get. It's pretty and close. Yeah, yeah, up, yeah. You pick up some words. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess like besides training in school, we're still planning on doing season two of Pick Last and Gym Class for my podcast. I interview people. We basically talk about the stories of struggles before success. And it's about 50-50 disabled people, 50-50 non-disabled people. So I would love to just keep doing, working a little bit more on like the creative podcasting side. I've had a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think more than anything this year has taught me, it's been a reminder. And I was reminded the last Olympic year too that you're never just an athlete. You're never just a person with a disability. You're never just a mom. You're never just whatever. Like we can be so many things and there's space for all of it. And it's been, it's been a weird, but good year to be reminded of that. Thank you, Lacey Henderson for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you. You can follow Lacey Henderson on Instagram. Uh, My name is Lacey is your friend there. Uh, I have a Twitter. It's Lace is your friend. I ran out of characters for that one. <laughs> her website is LaceyJHenderson.com. Her podcast is called Picked Last in Gym Class. Hey, burn it all down. This is Kristen Duquette. It is August uh, 2021. Uh, a little bit of a pause there because um, I feel like time is running still during COVID. Uh, I'm so looking forward to the Paralympic Games that are beginning in just a few days. I cannot wait to cheer on Team USA. And I'm so excited to watch my fellow friends and some former teammates uh, in swimming. They have gone through hell and back having an extra year Uh, to not only train, but adjust through COVID. I cannot wait to also watch uh, wheelchair basketball. I've gotten to know some of those players fairly well, and I'm ecstatic that their journey has made it to the Paralympic Games of something they've trained so long for. In addition, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing track and field and seeing how fast our athletes go. 
I think there's so much athleticism. I am beyond excited uh, to see. I'll be watching through Peacock and NBC Sports app. Uh, definitely a little bit of a singer that uh, NBC is not ne- airing nearly as much as they are or and did for the Olympics. That is certainly disheartening. But on the flip side, I do love the amount of progress that I have seen and the amount of sponsorships and also the uh, increase of airtime for the Paralympics here in the United States. So I I really can't wait to watch uh, Jessica Long on the U.S. Paralympic swim team. She's a, a favorite of mine. I always have loved seeing her swim. Um, Rudy Garcia Tolson is a friend of mine and he just has a heart of gold and is so kind and has worked incredibly hard and has a, a great story. Um, Mackenzie Cohen also, um, Colleen Young is someone I, I used to swim with on Team USA. So it's just really great to see uh, these athletes supported. And I can't I can't help but also mention Matthew Torres. Um, he was about eight years old, uh, eight or nine, I would say, um, when I was training. And so just like all the athletes, it's just – so great to watch and witness their journeys and, and cheer them on during such a hard year for everyone. So I'm I'm so excited uh, to see that come to uh, reality. Hey, okay, so this is Lacey Henderson, and boy, oh boy, what a journey it's been. <sighs> Well, I had a great season, to be honest. Um, I had a lot of stuff that I needed to get sorted with my prosthesis, so we got that all sorted away. Uh, a lot of it was very creative from my local clinician, so shout out to a king. Chris Hoyt, you the best. Um, and yeah, I kicked ass I kicked ass during the track season. Uh, I had a lot of breakthroughs and broke the America's record. So it's both North and South America. Um and went to team trials, kicked ass there. I won by a lot, uh, which was great. And then team announcement comes, <laughs> and I was not named to Tokyo due to some selection procedural stuff. I'm just tired even thinking about it, even shaping the words for my mouth. So that's been a big bummer. Um I did try to challenge it through a couple different avenues, but the fight was futile. Um, the fight was really more about standing up for myself, honestly. Um, Team USA pretty much has their stuff locked up tight, and it doesn't necessarily need to make sense. I am finishing the year being ranked fifth best in the world, and um, I really thought that they would want to support sending somebody who was going to make finals and do well, and that was the best in the country to go, but... There's a lot of politics, as we all know, in sport, and disabled sport is no different. You know, what a beautiful, beautiful gift. Um, so I've been able to find other jobs and a couple other things. I jumped a little bit uh, later after trials and uh, broke the record again. It was just a little bit difficult, honestly, because after the team was announced, I was told by USA since we only got 26 female slots, I ended up being number 27. So I had to train um, throughout the whole season. And they were just like, all right, hang on, just hang on. You know, we could t- still get team slots. This could happen, that could happen. So I was very much channeling like my inner Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. Like I was like, oh, you're telling me there's a chance. So trained, did really well. Um, but then they announced a final team and my name was not on it. Um, so I'm honestly dealing with the repercussions of that. It's been emotionally draining, you know, 
a lot of us do a lot for the sport. I moved, my whole, I made my boyfriend change his whole life and moved to Denver and we, we got done exactly what we needed to get done as far as performances, but it just didn't make the cut um, as per their selection criteria, which sucks very bad for me. Um, but it is what it is. I jumped so well that I am one of the few women right now that's on our national team. So as irony and fate would have it, I am, you know, somewhat contractually obligated to jump for another year for USA. So I think since performances and everything is going really well, I am far from being done. I guess now Paris is on the dock. I kept thinking that after this games, I would be done and be a grown up. And I guess I'm just going to Peter Pan it for a little bit longer. It's always a journey, you know, this shit is crazy (laughs) and it never goes the way that you expect it. But, um, it's really been a good life, and I'm just really lucky that I enjoy the event. I enjoy the technical aspects of long jump, and I'm seeing great results. Um, I've learned to get along a lot better with my dad. <laughs> He's been coaching me, and it's going great, but man, we are, it is, you know, as an adult that hangs out with your 75-year-old father, that's also, you know, that it asks a lot. Um, I'm on, honestly, I don't know if I'm going to watch the games. <laughs> my feelings are very hurt. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I put up a good fight and I don't know, the biggest thing for me when I, uh, went on Instagram and tried to get at least an email that I could write, um, to fight for my case to go to Tokyo, of course it was about Tokyo, but a lot of it was, I couldn't go to bed and look at myself in the mirror or just go on my daily life and call myself an advocate if I didn't rise to the occasion when it came for advocating for myself. I think so often, and disabled sport and just the world of disability in general, the weird thing is we take everybody at any time. Um, and it's a really hard and scary thing to navigate. And, you know, the powers that be are designed to be intimidating and people are afraid to speak up. And I just could not bear calling myself an advocate or a leader in any type of way if I wasn't willing to put up a fight for myself. You know, it's a lot easier to retweet or share something but when it comes down to that nitty gritty and you're making those phone calls, you're sending those emails, it was really hard. And man, I'm going to let you know, they were not uh, that nice to me in their responses. But um, but I had to stand up for myself. I mean, I've put up so much of a fight already and, you know, nothing nothing in this world is given to you. That's that's for life, but that's definitely in sport. So, um, you know, the journey continues and I'm just glad to be a part of a sport movement that is important to me and something that I am willing to fight for the integrity of it for while I'm still here and while I'm still doing it. So y'all hang on to your hats cause I'll see you next season. Thanks.